welcome to the Worthy Writer edition of the Write Something Worthy podcast. Each month, we bring you an informative interview that helps you to live your best life as an authorpreneur. And now, your host, Tanya Brockett. I met today's guest, Rita Rosencrantz, years ago at a book festival where she interacted so gracefully with emerging authors who were begging for her attention. Let me tell you a little more about Rita and her background. The Rita Rosencrantz Literary Agency is a well-established boutique agency representing almost exclusively adult nonfiction titles in a wide-ranging list of categories. Representing both first-time and seasoned authors, Rita looks for projects that present familiar subjects freshly or lesser-known subjects commercially. Rita works with major publishing houses, as well as regional publishers that handle a variety of niche markets. I am so excited to have her here today. Let me get into our interview with Rita Rosencrantz. So welcome. I have been looking forward to this for a long time, to have our guest today, Rita Rosencrantz, with us. So, Rita welcome. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with the Write Something Worthy podcast. And one of the things that I often have authors ask is whether they should go traditional when they publish or whether they should self-publish. Now, in your world, you are the one that can help them to go traditional. How do you tend to work with a first-time author who is looking to explore publishing from your perspective? Well, um, this is not as straightforward an answer as I'd like, but typically authors come to me when they have a query letter uh, that is backed by a proposal, maybe even a manuscript. Please keep in mind that I concentrate on adult nonfiction. I'm aware of the fiction world, but I can't speak to it as intimately And um, the presumption when an author is coming to me is that they are looking for a traditional route. I will also say that I have helped place traditionally easily two dozen self-published books over the years, even when there was a stigma about self-publishing. Usually the grade of publication wasn't as good. You could spot a self-published book from a distance uh, today, of course, uh, those books can can beat and sometimes the quality of a traditionally published book. So there's no qualitative difference. But uh, I think when an author is coming to me, it's largely because they've determined based on the requirements for distribution, full service, meaning there will be an editor, there will be a marketing team, there will be an agent who's troubleshooting every step of the way. This is an ideal situation when everyone is doing what they're supposed to do with their job description says, that they will not be tackling it alone. Now, there are some authors, of course, who um, want to concentrate on the writing. They're best um, devoted to that. Today, I would say that every author in some fashion has to be a marketer because discoverability is so important to breaking through. Uh, the crowded market, whatever the category is. So, um, but but that's 
in a nutshell, um, the value of traditional publishing. You buy into a team who can help straighten out what could be a rocky road. Uh, Self-publishing is easy. All you need, as I have said, is a credit card and a dream. But I can tell you, I've been in touch with, they've solicited my help, many, uh, many authors who went that route and now have five sold copies of their work and are wondering what the next step is. They didn't do it right. They did do it fast. And they didn't do it in an informed way. And I almost feel that's kind of a cursed situation because now that book has some history and it's a failed history. And no matter how ingenious I could be, um, I will not be able to write that. So, you know, I vote for traditional publishing. When it works right, it's fabulous. Um, Not all books can be traditionally published if it's a super niche book with a um, a market share of two dozen people, doing it as a self-published book makes perfect sense. You know how to reach those readers easily. It's a finite number. And probably a publisher, a traditional publisher, would not be interested if the market is that spare. Um, but as you can tell, I vote for traditional publishing. Indeed. But it really does make sense for a lot of authors. One of the other things that I find is a consideration when it when they're looking at the traditional versus self-publishing decision is timing. What is a typical yes. timeline for traditional publishing? Well, it can be depending on whether or not the manuscript is complete. And again, publishers, excuse me, authors approach me with different states of readiness, but it shortens the timeline if the manuscript is complete and and also uh, refined, not just raw. But it can be two years, especially given the way publishers work so far in advance with cataloging and pitching books to booksellers, etc. They need that uh, more relaxed, at least from a self-publishing standpoint, timeline to make sure everything moves steadily. That would include the cover design. That would include editing uh, and copy editing and then production. So at a minimum. And most contracts will uh, allow the publisher 18 months from delivery and acceptance to publication. Sometimes you can shorten that if there's an anniversary or great pressure to turn it around more quickly but rarely will it happen more quickly than that. And Tanya, if I can just go back a moment, um, some business book authors who want a book for their road tour, at least once upon a time, that was prevalent, might decide to self-publish because they know their market and it's discreet and they're in touch with it. And they can get those services, the editors, the marketing team, et cetera to amplify their skills, but they really just want a couple of hundred copies of their legitimate book to sell to their market share. And it's more than two dozen. It might even be thousands, but they're in touch with that market so scrupulously that they don't need that, if you will, middleman, namely the agent and the traditional publisher. Uh, Some of those books actually go on to be 
traditionally published because they've got so momentum, so much momentum that it's clear the audience goes beyond that initially understood discrete market. So that's one example of where traditional um, might come a beat behind that self-published book and where a self-published book does make sense. That's right. And we have seen that uh, happen frequently. There are a lot of examples of that, especially in the business books, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what do you find is the biggest challenge that you have in working with a first-time author? Let's say that you've accepted their um, manuscript and you've decided to represent them. What are some of the biggest obstacles they have to overcome? Well, I'll tell you some of the obstacles I have to overcome, and maybe that will be clear how that relates to the author. But I do believe in managing expectations. It's a not an easy marketplace. It's very crowded in some ways um, because of the self-publishing arena, which has added at least psychically all of these books on Amazon. It's crowded and how to stand out in regardless of the category, no matter how hungry the category, a crowded field. So I do believe in managing expectations. I believe in making clear to the author that they will have to do a lot of the heavy lifting, no matter which publisher is involved. If we are lucky, we will have undivided attention three months around three months at the time of publication, including their publicity team, who soon thereafter will move on to another list. And at that point, the author will be responsible for the long tail of that book. They'll never shut down. They'll never change gears. So I look to the author, first and foremost, to be present and to be proprietary toward their work. I am there as a member of their team, Introducing them, shepherding them through the industry, doing my best, given my crowded list, and I am select about the authors I take on, but I'm always multitasking, to uh, try to anticipate things for the author so that they're not like deer in headlights, uh, that they can plan accordingly. Uh, There is a little bit of wait and hurry up and hurry up and wait in the industry, Uh, for reasons that uh, I can't necessarily explain, but we have to figure out and live with, if not work with. So, you know, uh, authors lean on me differently. Some are very schooled in the world of publishing, even if they're new entries, even if it is their first book, maybe because they have friends who have clued them into what to expect, rumors about what can go wrong, the horror stories which exist, and um, and so, uh, but regardless of the readiness of the author, I want to make sure, because I am going to be the recipient of a commission once the book is placed, and uh, beyond the advance, if we're lucky enough to get an advance against royalties, ultimately the royalties well past publication date. So I am invested in making sure the author can participate wholly and regardless of the team, not not lose 
team, not lose momentum. Um, and also, I have a habit of whenever I come across an article that I think will help in marketing or help positioning or educate the author in a way that they might not have been exposed to prior to this piece, I will share it. I, it's not only a good way for me to stay in touch with my authors, to remind them that I'm vested in them, invested in them, but to, in fact, help the, uh, the launch of the book and, and then some, even beyond publication. But um, I will say, just sort of part two of this question, the, that you didn't bring up specifically, but that's very important to me. I do respect those authors who respect my time, who will send a, um, a, a very informed email as opposed to scattershot emails, who will use my time appropriately and uh, as I try to use their time appropriately, because that is a commodity that I can't, um, I have no control over. I've got finite time during the day, even though it's a long day. And I am very grateful for those authors who understand that and who don't want more than is appropriate, uh, even though I do feel I'm generous with my time. Wow. I think that is wonderful that you share information and education along their process. That's one of the things <laughs> that, you know, as a, a book coach myself, I want my authors to be more informed the next time they have a book than they are on the first turnaround. So mm -hmm. it is important that we share that information with them. I appreciate yeah. that. Mm -hmm. This relationship, agency relationship between you and an author, this isn't a one-hit wonder kind of scenario then, is it? Well, I'll say that there are books uh, there are authors for whom I've worked on one book, that one book was all that was in them. I'm grateful when that book is a success and we have that connecting us. I can't necessarily depend on there being another book. Their life might have moved elsewhere uh, or there is simply no interest in writing another book. Um, maybe they've changed genres in a way that I can't participate in their career further, but ideally the author has more than one book in him, in her, where I, when, as we were saying earlier, you know, the shepherding changes, there's a shorthand in place. We know how each, how we work uh, separately, collectively, ideally it's with the same editor because that relationship works so well, there's no reason to change. And now we can get on to the business of publishing smartly, no bumps along the road. For me, that's ideal. It means that the investment of time the first time around pays off over multiple books. And uh, really, that is the joy, uh, not only because it underscores the loyalty that comes from doing one's job well, but um, it means that I've had the pleasure of, uh, of a long career with some authors uh, over multiple books over perhaps a decade or more. And it is its own reward. It's really quite lovely. It, it, you know, it's a professional relationship, but it can turn personal for obvious reasons. It's a creative uh, 
community and it's a creative connection. And by definition, it goes beyond the borders of the simple, simple book or the complex book. But, um, but it's, it's what I hope for each time. But I'm, I'm okay with the one book that does okay. Or, of course, there are some books that don't do well at all. And uh, they're still important to me. Usually there's a lot of work in getting them to the launch pad. And um, they do make up the fabric of my list. So, um, and it is a diverse list. It's all across the uh, nonfiction category in a way that really satisfies my omnivorous uh, interest in the world. Wonderful. You know, one question that I'm often asked is if an author is coming in with multiple book ideas already, so they know they're going to have multiple books, is it unusual for an author's first book to be published by one publisher and their second or third to be published by others? Well, I'd have to tease out that question a bit. I mean, if the first book is a nonfiction book and the others are fiction or a children's book, Possibly it means that the university press that did the first book is not eligible for the others. But And sometimes it's because the second book is a lot more commercial. The author's ante has now been upped. The first publisher doesn't want to pay the value of the second book, having proved that worth for the first book. So it's not a straightforward answer. It sort of depends. But um, while I appreciate loyalty when the author has done well, and again, they're really well served by the editorial team and the publisher, and there's no real reason to move, then that's great. But sometimes there is reason for, again, having to do with genre or value, or uh, it might have to do with the relationship between the author and the editor, or the editor has moved on, is no longer there, the author feels marooned at that house. So I would take it case by case. But um, when an author approaches me, just back to that original situation with multiple books in the query letter, it can be confusing because it's not always clear what matters most to the author. Keep in mind that when an author is pitching me, I want to feel the, the, the fervor of that pitch. I want to understand that their heart and soul is in that work. And if it's spread thinner, and it's not to sit, take away from an author who is prolific, but if it's if everything pitched to me is sort of created equal in that pitch, it's harder to take any one seriously. So the author, I think, has to do some preliminary selection, and maybe it comes down to looking at the agents list and trying to figure out which of those projects would be best paired with that agent and pitch it accordingly. Um, but not uh, a trunk full of ideas um, or even, let's say, five ideas. That starts to get a little wobbly and, as I say, um, breaks down that, that fervor that I feel when an author says, you know, I've been working on this for five years and I have all these research materials that are unique and uh, this is an important book. <laughs> that pitch I understand better. Right. So speaking of the pitch, tell me the process for how an author would get your attention 
and make that pitch to you? What do they need to have for you uh, specifically, but also in general? If they were just thinking about traditional publishing, what are the things they need to do to make that so? Well, there are two available pitches, one at least traditionally, one-on-one, in-person, across the table, the in-person pitch, and then there's the query letter where that is distilled on the page and there's no chance for dialogue there the way there would be in a conventional setting at a writer's conference. In each case, I do believe that being succinct, compelling, clear, are the qualities of a good pitch. I will say that sometimes I get a pitch and I can't tell if the author is pitching me fiction or nonfiction. It can fall in either category. So being upfront about whether uh, the book, you know, what the genre is, what its length is, because sometimes there's an interesting sounding project that uh, comes in at 250,000 words, way beyond what is considered standard in the industry, that's going to throw me off. And it's good to know that up front because then I will even question the author, uh, are you sure about this? It breaks the mold. But um, usually, because, again, I handle nonfiction, I want to know how the author is well paired to the topic. What makes that author the dependable and perhaps best source for the material? What does the author bring to the table that furthers the conversation we've had on the topic, changes our way of thinking about the topic, helps us move forward in our lives, especially with a how-to book, self-help book, uh, how will it make a difference? Those are important points to make in in a query because I will understand that I can more ably pitch how this book is different and better, how it will transcend the competition, what this author brings to it that will help us as a team make that happen. If it's more of the same, it's less interesting to me. And so this is a tough requirement because there's so much out there and there are so many experts in the field that uh, trying to elevate beyond that is not easy. Sometimes it's that the author will have a social media platform or a speaking circuit, excuse me, or other ways of marketing that make it clear the book will have legs, even though it's a crowded category, even though there are similarities with other books out there. So there might be ways to pitch the book, despite the fact that it isn't that different from what we see in the marketplace. And it will come down to the author. But the author is um, not a negotiable aspect. The author is front and center for this. Who is the author? If I Google the author, uh, what do I find? Is there any any reference to the author online? Uh, and if not, that will be conspicuous in this day and age. Yes, that is so true. And sometimes people need to to Google themselves so that they can see what others will see once they are uh, searched for online. So that's an important point. So with a nonfiction book, 
when they are pitching you, when they are, let's say that it's a, a cold pitch and they have to do a query, might you, what is a response that you might have? One that you want to see a proposal, you want to see chapters. What is it that you'll ask for from the author after you say, hey, I like this. Let's see what we can do. Well, sometimes a an author will send me the proposal straight away along with a query letter. And so it's all in place. If they start with a query letter, which on my website it says to do, then I will uh, ask to see the proposal if I'm interested. And my turnaround time is pretty good because uh, I realize it's a competitive environment. I joke that my last name begins with R. And if an author is starting alphabetically, going through the agent directory, they'll get to me late in the game. So I have uh, got to be agile and respond quickly. Um, and I, I will, if I'm interested and have questions, try to set up a call to figure out some of the information that I feel is missing, the author's hopes and dreams for the work, maybe even their monetary needs to see whether or not I feel comfortable with their expectations, having said earlier that I do believe in managing expectations. So uh, I want to know where they are with other agents so I can gauge uh, their story at that point. Uh, in terms of submissions, as well as whether or not other uh, any publishers have seen the work. And I do that because on occasion, there's an author who's come to me whose work I'm interested in, and I find out somewhere deep in conversation that maybe another agent has represented it or some version of it, and I'm coming it, into it later in the game. That's a more complicated scenario, one that I've uh, experienced successfully when I thought that the original submission list was inadequate, but it's not my favorite scenario uh, because it means that there has been, it's not, it's not fresh and it's not um, free of the history. So, uh, but I do my best to kind of sniff out all of that early on uh, just so I'm not embarrassed uh, only once. And I swore it would never happen again. I submitted a work and the editor told me, you know, I've seen this before. And uh, and that's when I started asking, have any publishers seen the work? And not all authors will automatically offer that information, but they should actually, they should be clear about the book's history. And I think uh, for me, that signals an author's transparency, just the way they would want from me. Uh, transparent moves to know what's going on every step of the way. And in fact, that's how I work. They know the submission list. They know when we're getting rejection in real time. Um, and nothing is held back. It's the way I'd want to be treated if I were the author. So, um, but, you know, if I'm lucky enough to engage with the author at that point, we will try to make the work ready for submission. Sometimes that's instant, especially if it's come to me really refined. Um, I don't necessarily expect that to happen. I am a former editor. I don't mind offering tweaks and sometimes even more than that. But um, it won't go out until I feel that the material is ready, having to do with what I said earlier, the crowded marketplace. I don't want to believe in luck. I want to be able to plan for the best, because I've done my best along with the author. 
wonderful. That's a sounds like a wonderful reason to have a champion like you to help in that book publishing process. And speaking thereof, the cost of having a champion like you or agents in general, one of the misperceptions out there is that the author is just going to get paid every time somebody sells a book. Can you tell them how the real process works with the flow of money when an agented book is bought by a publisher and then sold out in the marketplace? Yes. Well, I'll try to keep it simple, although there are many strands here. Typically, a publisher pays in advance, an advance against royalties. They pay this money to you in stages, and it could be a little bit of money or more than a little bit of money. But regardless, depending on the, the subsidiary rights, the publisher has, that is, whether it's foreign rights or audio rights or book club rights, what have you, all of the streams of income from all of those sources are pooled to cover the advance they paid the author, after which, when that money is recouped, the publisher will start paying royalties. And that will either happen quickly or not quickly or not at all, depending on the size of the advance. Now, I've had small advances that have never earned out. I've had big advances that have earned out, big advances that have not earned out. There's no guarantee. So uh, no matter, I have to say, no matter what my feeling is about something being a big book, you don't know until it starts happening, and then some. Who would have guessed that COVID would have put such a wrench in the industry? So many books that got postponed and then got bottlenecked on a new list, a future list. Um, things happen. It's actually a bit of a minor miracle when, when things go the way they're supposed to without hitches. But... You know, the, once a book starts earning back royalties, it's really a good thing. And that's because if there is a second book, first of all, there's that annuity. You know, you've earned money beyond the initial advance. But also, that suggests the book was a success and that there is room for a second book. Because, you know, ideally related in some fashion to the category the author was writing in. But, um, but that the audience showed up. And I like to see when that happens. When, you know, that first check after maybe one or two years or more, suddenly it's crept into the black and uh, it's noteworthy. That's exciting. Now, what is the typical frequency of those royalty checks once they've earned out? What is the typical frequency? Most publishers pay twice a year, and they have their own schedules. They're not necessarily identical, but I'd say, you know, May to June and October through December, typically, that's the spread twice a year. So speaking of... COVID and how that has shaken up our entire economy, 
quite frankly, here in the U.S. What are some changes that you've seen in the publishing industry as a result? And what do you think are going to continue to be trends versus things that may get corrected after we pass through the pandemic? Well, one concern that seems to be longer than we'd like is the supply chain problem, getting paper, getting enough paper for um, for book printing. And I understand that publishers are having to work earlier than they had been in the past to guarantee that they have the paper supply they need. I was thinking today that this might also mean that if an author promises a 90,000-word book and suddenly comes in at 100,000, that might have been less of an issue than it is today when that means more paper. So that is probably a point that has to be considered and negotiated and figured out. Uh, so I would say some of just the, the physical production aspects that said, of course, ebooks, there was that spike during COVID. And frankly, book publishing did reasonably well during COVID, I'm grateful to say. And I say that because invariably, when there's um, some problem, you know, global problem, some unrest, it seems that publishing is very vulnerable and doesn't profit from it, uh, suffers from it. In this case, as they say, sales were up. Audio proved to be an enduring format. I don't think that's going away. Possibly inspired by podcasts where people are very comfortable listening to long, long format work. So I think that will be, um, that will be part of the norm going forward. Uh, I think the popularity of TikTok and Instagram to whatever degree those lead to book ideas, I'm seeing more and more of that. Probably that will have a shelf life until we move on to the next thing. Um, but you know, the, some things stay the same and some things keep changing in order to freshen it all up. And I do believe that that's, that's pretty much a given. Good point. Good point. What do you believe is a... What is a good habit for authors to be in who want to work in the traditional publishing realm? Meaning, you mentioned before that they have to be willing to market their book. Because, you know, everybody's not going to do that for them. A lot of people used to believe that, oh, I'll go traditional and they'll take it from there, and I can just, you know, go do book signings every once in a while or what have you. Um, what kind of habits do authors need to be in right now so that they can make sure their books stay relevant and that they stay relevant in front of their publishers or agents? Mm-hmm. I think it starts and ends with fire in the belly. Belief in your book, almost the mission statement of it. This book counts, uh, and I will do whatever is possible that's legal to communicate that to the world, at least my market share. And 
that I will respect the team's involvement. You know, uh, good behavior counts, I'm sure of it. I, uh, I do think it's very easy to alienate team members if you act out, even if you're feeling passionate, a passion gone awry in a way. But we're always having to sort through the conditions of things, what's happening at the moment, not getting a response. Publicists work very hard. And the thing about publicity and marketing, they're not letting you know what they do every single day. Mostly, they're reporting on the success when it happens, which usually is not immediate gratification unless you're very lucky. So it is easy for an author to think nothing is being done and to take it out on publicity. I think um, gentle inquiries go a long way as opposed to hollers. So I think, you know, fire in the belly, respect for your team, uh, a relatability to your audience, creative mind, figuring out new ways to market because uh, what worked yesterday doesn't always work today. Keep it fresh. And always have a copy of your book with you because you're never going to know. You never know who you're going to sit next to wherever. I mean, assuming we get back to something resembling normal. So I, right. but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's discipline. It's good conduct. It's belief in one's work. And it is um, the high goal of sending a good message that will communicate um, well to your readership. So wonderful. And that is so fitting for this podcast because our intention is to help people to write something worthy. Mm -hmm. And when you're, you know, taking that um, perspective Ah, it just makes your experience that much richer, that much greater, that and have that much bigger of an impact, frankly. Yes. So, so tell me, um, how is it that our listeners can best contact you and reach out to you in the future? Well, my website has contact information. It's an open door policy. It's great, certainly, if they let me know how they came to me. I'm always curious because I am in a lot of directories and the world is wide um, and small at the same time. And I uh, always like to know how readers or, uh, excuse me, authors circulate and how they how they do come to me. But my guidelines for uh, submitting a query letter or proposal are on my website which is www.RitaRosenkranzLiteraryAgency.com. And I welcome all queries from your listeners. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so very much. We will make sure that we put your link to your website in the show notes for this episode so that they can reach out to you quickly and easily uh, when mm -hmm. they have something that they've written that is worthy of your eyes. Thank you. So, Rita... I just want to thank you so very much for spending time with us today. It's been absolutely wonderful and enlightening. And I hope that our listeners will find that um, 
the traditional side of publishing isn't very frightening when they can hear someone as polished, as professional, as caring as you. So thank you. Mm. I thank you for uh, sharing your time with me today, Tanya. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode with guest Rita Rosencrantz. Visit writesomethingworthy.com forward slash podcasts for resources referred to in this episode. Have a wonderful week and remember to download, subscribe and join the Worthy Tribe.